to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Zach, I'm one of the pastors, uh, and if you're a guest with us today, we're really glad to have you, and maybe you're, uh, maybe you're here because you uh, were downtown yesterday, and you came and enjoyed some food in a bounce house uh, by chance, and if that's true of you, we're really glad to have you. We're glad that you could be our guest yesterday and today. We actually are in the middle of a sermon series on our mission statement, which is that we at Rockwell Press desire to be transformed by the cross of Jesus, by growing in community and cultivating our hearts to love God and others. And in this series, we're basically focusing on the three main words of that mission statement. Cross, community, and cultivate. And we're spending two weeks on each one uh, of those uh, words. And this week, we're in the second week on community. Today, we're going to consider community uh, through two letters that are written to two different churches that speak in very strong language about the necessity of love in the life of God's people. It is a non-negotiable. We'll see Jesus talk about it in his letter to the Ephesians and the book of Revelation, and we'll see Paul talk about it in his letter to the Corinthians. As we consider this passage this morning, or passages, I want our focus to be on the idea of maturity, to think about maturity together. Because our, our goal, our mission, is not simply to be a community. Our mission is to grow as a community to grow in richness, to grow in depth, to grow in Christ-likeness, to be something different in a year than we are today. It's to grow and it has a direction and a purpose. 
And so, you know, if we are the body of Christ, certainly over time we would think that together we would begin to move and act and think and live as Christ, as he would, as he did, and as he showed us. So as we begin to think about maturity this morning, let me just ask you a, let me just ask you a personal question and how you would, def- or not define maturity, but how would you go about pursuing maturity, spiritual maturity, in your life? So 2019 is coming up, New Year's resolution time. Maybe for you, you know, if, well, let's just say for you in 2019, spiritual maturity was your number one priority. What in your mind do you think that you would need to begin to do to move in that direction? So I'm going to let you think about that. I want you to keep that question in your mind, and we'll come back to it. But first, we're going to look at Jesus' letter to the Ephesians. At the beginning of the book of Revelation, you've got seven letters in chapters 2 and 3. Jesus uh, writes letters to seven different churches, and in each one, what he does is he highlights certain aspects within their community to get them to move towards maturity, towards more faithfulness. And so, with the Ephesians, what do we see? He starts off first by commending them. He says, I know your toil and your patient endurance. You don't bear with those who are evil. You've tested false apostles, or you've tested those who claim to be apostles and found them to be false. You've not grown weary in fighting against anything that would bring disgrace or profane the name of Christ. So if we stopped right there, we might immediately think, wow, sounds like a great church. Sounds healthy. Sounds strong. And it sounds faithful. They don't tolerate false teachers that would mislead God's people. They remain steadfast in their devotion. And truly, are those not wonderful things? Of course they are. Might we be known by those things? But the letter goes on. And in verse 4, the tone changes. Jesus says, But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. What happened to you, Ephesians? What happened to that loving community that I once knew? Do you think that you graduate from love? What happened to the love you had at first? Now, if we come back to that question of what you think you would need to do to begin to move in the direction of spiritual maturity, what did that list look like? Now, if I could assume, I would imagine that most of us in some way would have predominantly defined spiritual maturity with the very things that Jesus commends the Ephesians for doing. Our basis for maturity would primarily be defined by gaining knowledge. So we'd read our Bible more, we would study more, we would learn more, and we would seek sound doctrine, and we would try to remain steadfast in that pursuit. And you wouldn't be wrong whatsoever in placing value on those things. Why? Because Jesus places value on those things in in this letter. But these things are necessities, yet we cannot make the mistake of equating those things with maturity. So if we look at what Jesus says in verse 5, if he goes on, he says, remember how you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, what is he saying with that last sentence about the lampstand? This is the book of Revelation. It uses a lot of imagery and symbolism to express its meaning. So without getting, you know, losing the forest for the trees, 
quite simply, we need to understand very briefly what this lampstand represents so that we know what Jesus is saying to these Ephesians. In the Old Testament, where did you see a lampstand? It's in the temple. It's in the holy place, just outside the most holy place. The holy place was essentially just a bare room, but it didn't have a lot of things in it. But one of the things that it did was a lampstand. And this lampstand represented the people of God, Israel, in the presence of God. And the job of the high priest was to trim it, to keep it, to tend to it, and to care for it, and to make sure that it was always lit and attended. Why? Because he was the mediator between God and his people. And now, in the book of Revelation, at the very beginning of our passage, it says that Jesus is now the one who walks among the candlesticks, or the lampstands, whichever, different versions. But, same thing. Jesus is now your great high priest who stands before the Father day and night representing us in the presence of God. So what's Jesus saying in verse 5? When he says that he will come and remove their lampstand, Jesus is saying that if they do not repent for their lack of love, he will remove their church entirely. They will be cast out of his presence. We could not find a clear depiction of how Jesus views love as a non-negotiable. We could not find it any more clear when he says, I will cast you out of my presence and remove your place from my presence. That's a powerful statement. Now, as you thought about maturity in your own life, was love just as non-negotiable? It's non-negotiable for Jesus. Was it negotiable or non-negotiable for you? Did you even think of it? It should challenge us to consider maturity in deeper ways. Theological knowledge and sound doctrine alone cannot be the litmus test for maturity. Why? Because the Ephesians had all of that, and yet it still was not enough to ensure their status as God's people. And their fate rested on a razor blade as to which way they would go. Jesus requires more than what they were offering. And to keep uh, from making the same mistake as the Ephesians, we have to recognize the place of theology, of sound doctrine, and knowledge in the life of the community. The first thing we've got to recognize is, if we go back to that question, is if you considered, as, as you considered moving towards spiritual maturity and you had maybe some things in your mind that you would need to begin to do, what did that look like? Well, like we already said, if it essentially came down to simply reading and studying more, we have to realize that that perspective is really probably more shaped by our culture than the scriptures because our culture is obsessed with personal development, with self-improvement, and all we do is wrap it up in Christian packaging when we say, I need to gain all of these things, and none of our ideas about maturity include how we relate to another. And if our definitions of maturity simply resolve on what we gain and not about what we give, then we have radically underestimated the teachings of Jesus that we claim to know. And if we envision a pathway to maturity that excludes how we relate to one another, then might we understand how we really are by looking at the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, I know all the commandments and I have kept them all. Jesus says, fine. Let's start with the first one. How about you sell everything you have and give to the poor? simply because the Lord your God asked you to. 
And then he goes away sad. He goes away discontent and frustrated because the teachings of Jesus were too hard. Sure, his doctrine was sound, but his heart in the end didn't want anything to do with what it said. It didn't, have anything to, didn't want anything to do with how God would have him to live. And secondly, we have to recognize that doctrine and theology, quite frankly, are the easy part. Is it not? It's not that hard to understand what the Bible says about sin. It's not that hard to figure out what it says about lust or greed or the fruit of the Spirit. It's not that hard to understand what the Bible says about marriage and relationships and the church. What's easy for me is learning that Christ calls me to love my wife as Christ loves the church. You know what's hard for me? Loving my wife as Christ loves the church. I almost expected in the first service to get an amen from right about there, but I did not. But it's true. I could tell you all day about it. And yet, is it not so hard? If we think that learning and gaining knowledge alone is all it takes to reach maturity, we've got to recognize how silly that is. Because it would be like you thinking that you could just read the rule book to the NBA, and as soon as you finished, you'd be able to shoot like LeBron James. Or you maybe read the keto diet, a book about that, and what it's like, and how to do it, and how it works. And as soon as you finish, you're magically at your target weight. How simple we view our faith if all we have to do is just learn a couple of things or read a little bit more. Is that all it means when Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me? And I think that, you know, we have to recognize that we're not judged based on how much we know. We're judged based on how what we know has informed and shaped and changed the way that we live. I thought all week about the deep forest pastors. I have more theological education than all of those guys combined, over 10 lifetimes. It's just where they are, and it's where I'm at. What I've had opportunities to have and what they haven't. But to think that I am more mature than them because of that is a little silly. I go every year, and I get to go in three weeks, and I can't wait, because I'm always reminded of what they go through in their ministry. These men have been beaten bloodied, broken, sent out, of the, sent out of the village, left for dead. And then they go back the next day telling those same people, I've got to tell you about the love of Jesus. I'm here to tell you about the love of Jesus. And not just the next day. Some of them do that for years, six years, ten years, before they have their first convert. Now, am I going to be so arrogant when I go as to think that just because I've read Calvin's Institutes or my library is bigger, that I am more mature than they are? That is preposterous. So I think we have to recognize again the same reality they confront me with is that it's not about how much I know. But do I really believe what I do claim to know? Is it really better to love and treat my neighbor as myself? Is it really better to give than to receive? And thirdly, we have to recognize the point of all Christian theology and doctrine and knowledge and why it's a gift. God has revealed himself to us in the scriptures because he loves you tremendously, so much so, that he wants to transform you into the image and likeness of his son. And he wants to transform you so that you become more like him, so that you would become a blessing to the world around you. You'd be transformed so his character 
became, became more of your character. What Christ values became what you valued. His nature became your nature. And that is God's desire for us in all of our learning. is not to give us a bunch of information and make us feel confident, but to invite us into an adventure of transformation where you become like God the Son who is love itself and invite you into that relationship with him. And so, I think we have to ask ourselves a challenging question. For those of us that would think that we pride ourselves on sound, sound doctrine, my theology's in a row, I pride myself on its precision. That's fine. Like we said, good things. Good things. Necessi- or necessary things. But we've got to go one step further and ask. With all of that sound doctrine, in the last 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, would the people closest to you be able to tell you in any significant way how you've become more like Christ? Could they come up with a list? Could they come up with anything? See, in Jesus' economy, you can have all the, all the knowledge and theology and sound doctrine in the world, but if you don't have love, you're still just a bad theologian. And Jesus would invite you to something far greater than that. Because if we make maturity simply about those things, then we run the risk of being them just like the Ephesians, where we're completely right and completely wrong at the same time. And we don't even know it. And how gracious is it of Jesus to come to them and remind them of the need for love. And so do you see it this morning? The necessity of love in the life of Jesus' people. The necessity of love in your life. Maturity, if you desire it, it requires love. And let me be clear, you know, the call to love does not negate our, uh, does not negate our need for doctrine and theology, and knowledge, and right thoughts about God. They go hand in hand. Love is the opportunity to offer some evidence that we actually believe what we claim we believe. Maturity requires love. So the question then becomes, what does love actually look like? Paul in his letter gives us a picture, a very famous picture, as he writes to the Corinthians, who were notorious for their arrogance uh, as a very arrogant church. They boasted in their uh, spiritual gifts. They boasted in tongues. They boasted in prophecies. They boasted that they had special knowledge and insight into the things of God. Boastful bunch. But all you had to do was look at what happened in their life together to realize that their life together completely negate, or completely was, the, was just the complete opposite of what they thought they were. It showed that they actually didn't really know God in the way they thought they did. So, for instance, they completely tolerated a man having a completely inappropriate relationship with his stepmother. There was lawsuits between members. The leaders had become rivalrous and just jockeyed for position. They had the rich would isolate themselves, have communion together, and then give the scraps to the poor people in the church that they would have sit in the other room. This is a it's a church completely devoid of love, and yet here they are. They're puffed up by the belief that they were special in God's sight because of what they thought they knew and what they did. Paul challenges them to actually see who they really are by what? Confronting them with love. The reality and necessity of love. And he does it in a pretty blunt way, quite frankly. He says, you know, that's fine. You want to speak with the tongues of men and angels? If you want to speak with eloquence? He said, it doesn't matter. If you, have, if you don't have love, you're a noisy gong. 
You're just going to be as hateful and as much of a jerk in a different language as you are normally. You could be a person that has faith to move mountains. You could have all knowledge and all wisdom, but if you don't have love, you're going to be a mountain of self-importance and pride, and no one's going to want to be around you. You could have, give everything you have to the poor, but who cares if you don't have love? You're just like a Pharisee that rattles the offering plate so everybody knows how much you put in. If you don't have love, the only thing you have is love for self. And he's trying to invite them to recognize that, that you know, all of their learning, all of their gifting, and all of their effort is inevitably about their own self-promotion, their own comfort, and their own gain if they don't have love, which is the complete opposite of what they're called to, which all of those things are to be used for the goodness of the community and for the good of one another. And he could not be any clearer when he says, summarizes all three of these things to put it into three words that Paul says, without love, all you are is noisy, nothing, and bankrupt. Again, do you see the necessity for love? Because without love, we can still give the appearance of maturity. We can still give the appearance that we are mighty in the faith. You can desire to be a teacher. Yet without love, what are you? It's maybe if you don't have love to equip God's people and yet you desire to be a teacher, maybe it's because you just want the affirmation and the validation and the compliments from others. Or you could serve in every capacity in the church. But it's not really out of a love for the body to meet the needs of your brothers and sisters. It's really just because being needed offers you a tremendous amount of security and satisfaction. We can always fake maturity, which is why we always have to be mindful of the call to love and ask, why am I doing any of this? And to be challenged to love and to serve and to pour ourselves out for one another in the way that Christ has called us to. And so, what does love look like? Verses four through seven, Paul writes one of the most uh, famous passages that you know very well. It's probably hung on your wall at some point in uh, your life. And you've heard it at many weddings. But it's meant for much more than that. This is a depiction of what Christian love and maturity really look like. I'm going to read these verses. I'm going to ask you to consider where you fit into all of this. As I read these verses, where are you challenged? What needs to change in your heart if you desire to grow in maturity and Christ-like love? Because the way Paul goes about describing love is actually by saying what it's not. He says love is patient, love is kind, and then he goes by saying what it's not, which essentially is saying these are obstacles to the love you're called to exhibit. And in particular, he's telling, it has the effect of telling the Corinthians, love is the opposite of the way that you're acting. So he invites them to recognize that these are obstacles to being the people they're called to be. And I invite you into that same thing as we read. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. The simplicity of those verses is honestly what makes it so powerful. 
doesn't need me to say much after it. But I'll say a few things. We don't have time to go through each one, but we might consider and be willing to challenge ourselves. Love does not boast or envy. Sorry, love does not envy or boast. Do you envy or boast? Both envy and boasting struggle with the same problem. They always want what other people have, whether it's their possessions or their praise. And the person who's envious or boastful is not ready to move towards community because they're always looking towards everyone else to fill that great emptiness of the heart. And love offers a more excellent way for the one who is envious and boastful. Love learns to pray for others to be blessed. Love learns to pray for the good of those around you. Love learns to pray for others to have the same things that you, the good things you would want for yourself. Love learns how to pray for others and not just themselves. Love is not arrogant. Are you arrogant? Arrogance is not moving towards maturity because arrogance only feels comfortable when it's the center of everyone's orbit, when it's the focus of everyone's conversation. But love offers a more excellent way. Love learns to listen. Love learns to talk about someone else. Love learns to ask questions. Love learns to discover the suffering in another person that's right in front of you so that you might minister to their needs. Love is not easily angered. Do you struggle with anger? I'm not angry, you're angry. Just kidding. (laughs) Who is one who's easily angered, which quite frankly is the hardest one for me, is not one who's easily angered, is not moving towards maturity because they're so unwilling to live in an imperfect world with imperfect people, which means that they're not actually ready for the church because they could never come to a place where they would see their brothers and sisters as a precious gift. They're always going to be a problem to fix. And love offers yet a more excellent way for the angry one. Love seeks to encourage others. Love compliments them. Love builds them up. Love does not tear them down. In all of these things, might we hear the radical call of Jesus and Paul this morning to embrace the necessity of love in the life of our community. Maturity requires love, and love requires community, which means we all need one another. We all need to be a priority for one another because how can we be faithful to what Jesus and Paul call us to if community is not a priority? How can we be faithful to grow in maturity? How's maturity even on the table? If every man time event, or IPC women's event, or 50 plus event, or community group is always considered an inconvenience, maturity will always be an impossibility. And if that's you, then perhaps the church in Ephesus would have felt like home. But love offers a better way. It offers a more excellent way that Pamela Turno wrote about last week as she experienced it as she was laying in the hospital. She said, hello, my RPC Central community group. It's a little after midnight and I'm waiting for the next round of pain medicine, so I thought I'd take a minute to just say thank you so very much for all of your thoughtfulness and kindness to us in this situation. The meals have been delicious and having Matt Fuquay and Ryan Swindle come over and pray over me in person 
meant more to me than either of them will ever know. I felt the power of everyone's prayers as I headed into surgery yesterday, feeling very much at peace in the hands of a good and loving God. You all are the hands and feet of Jesus, and he is beautiful. Let's pray. Jesus, to love like you is impossible without your grace and your mercy. Your word tells us that we can come and ask in abundance for such grace and such mercy. And so the question becomes, do we really want it? Might we be those that truly want to love as you have called us? Because it sounds very freeing, quite frankly. And I think we all would desire to experience more freedom and more rest and not being tossed to and fro by our circumstances or people or what they own or where they live or where I live or how I'm treated. Might we know the strength that comes from looking more like you. Would you meet us at this table this morning? It's you we desire to feast upon. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.